0: This podcast is supported by VIPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. This is episode 63 today, and is our first foray into Zoom recorded interviews in light of the COVID-19 saga. We actually had this interview scheduled the week that the COVID-19 shutdowns were implemented. If this is a success, we will be able to increase our recording numbers twofold, not to mention interviewing people interstate and abroad. It's been a very interesting time throughout the COVID-19 shutdown period. One of the things that I've noticed and have been particularly impressed and shocked by is the utilisation of our parks and gardens. Never before have I seen such huge numbers of people walking, cycling and relaxing in these spaces. I went for a bike ride along the Merry Creek a week or so ago um, down in Melbourne. It was busier than Burke Street at peak hour. This is, of course, has, of course, got me thinking. Is COVID-19 a shake-up we needed to increase physical activity in our suburbs? How do we ensure that these habits continue post-lockdown? What is likely to happen post-lockdown? To help us unpack this very big topic beyond just COVID-19 is Ben Rossiter from Victoria Walks. Ben is the Founding Executive Officer of Victoria Walks, who have become the primary walking organisation, leading the move towards the creation of walkable communities in Australia. Ben is also the Vice President of the International Federation of Pedestrians. Prior to this, Ben was involved as an Active Transport Programme Advisor at VicHealth. Welcome to the show, Ben. It's great to have you on today and to be our very first Zoom participant.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Ben, can you tell us briefly about what uh, Victoria Walks does?
2: Well, we're a walking health promotion uh, organisation established uh, with funding from Vic Health 10 years ago. And our role really is to get Victorians active and on their feet to uh, particularly reduce the incidence of, um, of preventable diseases obesity and, and such like um, we do that through uh, providing us leadership in walking and walkability we're evidence-based so we do a lot of things like uh, submissions and high-level policy engagement with government um, but also a direct walking promotion to the community we have a Pretty reasonable social media presence, about 85,000 Facebook followers who are highly engaged, predominantly women. We also have a walking maps website, walkingmaps.com.au, which is extremely popular in Victoria and growing popularity around Australia where people can find, share and create uh, maps with points of interest uh, uh, for a variety of reasons.
1: I love that feature of your website, Ben, because people can create their own walks and post them with places of interest, so it's a democratization of walks. You don't need a guidebook, essentially. I'm overwhelmed by the goodwill of people setting those walks up.
2: Yeah, they're, they're not so much walks as just, I guess, uh, walks to sort of setting up a walk, you know, with others. But um, uh, basically, promoting you know really, really great walks and um, a lot of interest. A lot of local governments are, are creating walks, but sometimes tourism and uh, uh organizations are uh, seeing the benefit we have done a lot of walk mapping ourselves and in partnership with vic health parks victoria and others but no it is and um the, there's over a couple of thousand walks about 500 uh what we call the staff picks the better ones which have really good photos and interests uh, points of interest and information and that's the default search there's also a, a mobile website that people can find walks mm. on mobile Ben, what
1: do we know about walking rates and how is the information compiled? I mean, very wary at the moment of uh, information statistics, so we need really good base measurements. How do you go about doing that?
2: It's really difficult walking... Well, policy walking is the most popular recreation, physical activity by country mile across the country. Um, It's also, uh, you know, about one in six of our transport trips in Melbourne, Victoria, and it's similar in most capital cities, are done entirely on foot. Uh, then there's ones added with public transport. In in Melbourne, it's about 24% of trips are walking based, so walking and walking into public transport. We know that from household travel surveys that most state governments do. But beyond that, we really quite poor don't value walking despite it being extremely popular so we don't measure we don't count walking particularly transport walking um transport agencies you know will count vehicles including bicycles not as much as motorized vehicles uh in all their transport planning count them on the road network we don't count walkers um often um uh, governments or People refer to, you know, rates of walking to work, and that's really extremely inadequate way of measuring walking, particularly in Australia, because walking trips to work are usually of a a great distance, so walking won't really be covered in that. And walk-to-work only covers where it's walk-only trips. It doesn't even cover um, public transport. Uh, It doesn't no longer, for I think a couple of decades, walk-to-school is not covered in the census and that sort of thing.
0: So it really doesn't cover the incidental walking as well?
2: No, it doesn't cover that. That's where the, um, in, like, Vista and Victoria, you know, Victorian Integrated Survey of Travel and Activity does cover it. Um, but beyond that, no, we don't. We we definitely don't do it in transport planning, um, you know, when we're looking at when state and federal governments a funding things and local, very few in Melbourne. The Melbourne City Council has pedestrian counters around the city. I think Sydney has some, but they're really rare uh, to have actual counters to know the numbers and movement of walkers.
1: Well, why have walking rates dropped or stagnated, Ben?
2: Well, is it, it's I mean, that's a, really, a huge
1: question. Huge question. Yeah,
2: huge question. But also three, three reasons.
1: Three reasons.
2: Well, it's a complex issue because, in some ways, if you look at say Vista that. The travel survey, uh, they've actually increased. So it's its complex. Uh, in 2009, in, uh, in Melbourne and some of the regional centres, it was about 12% of trips. By 2014, 16, it had gone up to 12%. Um, and there can be reasons why, but definitely walk to school has dropped. Um, and walking for transport, if you think back, sort of, you know, since post-second world war when we started really designing around cars yes walking rates have dropped and public transport rates have dropped but both are slowly on the increase um particularly you know public transport is so it's complex but i think the real reason is we just we've designed our cities around cars we have low density urban sprawl and the three big things around walking is connectivity uh, you know, land use destinations relevant to everyday life within walking distance and density. Um, so if you think over the last 50 years or so, that's not been the focus of how we've designed our cities, but is starting to become the focus now as we're increasing density. And de- and when you increase density, you'll get more destinations.
1: Just going back to Jess's point about seeing everyone walking around, I've been thinking about this COVID uh, is issue public open space and good parks are very good for mental health, Mental health, and being in a green space for 20 minutes is better than an antidepressant tablet. One thing is why don't we have greater density around a lot of the regional parks and municipal parks we've got so that people can, you talk about, you know, there's got to be a reason to walk. Why can't we have much medium density, much more around, you know, the big metropolitan parks we've got?
2: I think that, that would be really important, but if we think about walkability, we also have to have access to public transport, destinations and, you know, things that support walking as well as the green space. We know that green space is a really big motivator for recreational walking. When we Often when we go out, we're, we're hunting out green spaces and that contact with nature is really critical. It's part of, you know, it's, it's one of the things that um, is important to us as humans. I think but it's also about a lot of the recreational walking happens on, if you like, the footpath network in neighbourhoods. And I think if we're thinking about COVID, one of the most significant things we've got on at the moment is the level of walking on neighbourhood streets and riding bicycles. You know, if there's been a in Melbourne an 88% drop in vehicle travel in the last month, but significant walking on everyday streets. And that's something that people... I think most people would not have experienced in their lifetime a level of increased social interaction with physical distancing on neighbourhood streets so you're seeing people taking ownership of streets of all ages walking you know yesterday i was watching kids parents with kids Four or five riding their bikes down my street. Now that didn't happen six weeks ago. Uh, seeing seniors walking on the street. Uh, unfortunately, with COVID, we're seeing a lot of people not giving seniors room to move, and seniors are the ones who often have to get away, particularly on shared paths, which are very problematic for vulnerable walkers. So I think it's it's the neighbourhood streets, and I think in greenery we need greener in the areas, particularly where we're getting density, greener better quality streets and public spaces linking to these bigger parks as well. So that we can that's a really a key thing we're missing is particularly with climate change going forward and being more resilient, we are going to have to have greener neighborhoods and linking to those big open spaces.
0: Mm. And what about I mean I guess the other thing coming out of COVID 19, as you said, have touched on, is the adequacy of our current footpaths and whether or not they're actually facilitating walking as an alternative. Um, what are your views or have you done any work around, I guess, the physical size and function of our footpaths? Are they adequate? Are they not adequate? Are we going to need lighter footpaths in future, particularly if we do start to see um, significantly increased walking rates?
2: Well, they are. I think most footpath networks are inadequate. The average footpath in, you know, middle suburbs, you know, established suburbs are probably about 1.2 metres wide. Well, that's not going to work with COVID. But beyond that, it's, it's things like, you know, we have increased ageing population, mobility scooters, um, footpaths, one out in front of my house, you, you, a pram, a larger pram coming the other way. Well, you can't fit on the footpath. You've got to get off. So they're they're not. I think wider footpaths, yes but it has to depend on a reallocation of road space. I think it's, uh, again, I look at my footpath to widen it would mean we wouldn't have a verge.
0: One of the other things I've noticed, particularly uh, where I am, is where well, where I live currently, a lot of the verge is taken up by um, garden space that people have planted, which is lovely. It looks fantastic. But in that sense, it actually um, inhibits your ability to get off the footpath when there is someone coming towards you, if there's someone with a pram or... The mobility scooter yeah. there's nowhere to move um yeah. equally you've also then got the boxes on the nature strip that people are putting books and games and plants and you know free things mm-hmm. into for people to collect but so it's it's, an, it's a really interesting um combination of factors that I think are actually um creating some barriers but also they're creating a really incredible uh community spirit and yeah. you know you've got to I guess weigh up the two and work out which is the better
2: I think, yeah, you've touched on some interesting things there, Jess. And, you know, footpaths are for walking, but they're also for talking, playing, loving, living, learning. They're the basis Mm. of our public and community space. They need to be protected and strengthened. So they have a multiple purpose as compared to other transport infrastructure, which is about the flow of getting to A to B. So we have to understand our footpaths and our community spaces should have that. Mm. The issue is that we give so much space over to the motor vehicle and things like parking. But also, and I'll come back to parking later, but footpaths, I mean, we've got to think in terms of walking. It's not just about footpaths. The biggest, one of the biggest issues is ability to cross roads, cross streets, particularly arterial. So it's the infrastructure to enable us to get safely and conveniently around neighbourhoods and to the destinations we need to go. It's also challenges, which particularly in Australia, is something which we're not looking at, not addressing, is we have a massive gender inequity in public space. Australia is the fourth worst OECD country for women feeling safe walking at night. And we have Mm -hmm. the biggest gap between any OECD country, I think it's about 32 or 34, between men feeling safe and women feeling unsafe. And and
0: what are the the features, I guess, of a safe versus an unsafe environment for men and women?
2: One thing is... (laughs) I'm not being glib here, but ask them. We don't ask them, and this is a, like we don't actually go to to find out where people's experience of cities. One thing is always challenging for walking is because when we all walk, often we'll walk neighbourhood streets that we like, we feel comfortable, and we avoid the ones we don't, but we don't actually look at why it feels it's, an, you know, why we don't go some spaces. We did do some research with young people a few years ago um, and found out that, uh, for, you know, 15% of girls felt safe walking in their community at night and 54% of boys did. And there's things which came across quite strongly is the level of harassment in the street. You know, catcalling, abusive, leering. I mean, those sort of things are really critical. And that's not just, your know, behaviour. men, blokes changing their behaviour. It's also how we, are, you know, function and relate in, in society. But... To leave that aside, then look. At, I want to look at it a transport issue, which I think illustrates why gender needs to be thought of differently. When I, as a fit, healthy adult male, walkie at night, and I, I come to pedestrian, lie, traffic lights, pedestrian signals, whatever, and I have to press the big button to cross the road, you know, wait for cars, and I just have to stand there for a minute, and it's really annoying, it's frustrating annoying, but I think for a lot of women or vulnerable walkers, it's not just frustrating and annoying, it can leave you totally exposed and feeling vulnerable. You're standing there in the dark, there's cars all around and you're forced stationary. So that's an issue where there's a gender inequity, frustrating for me, but vulnerability for some other people. So that's the sort of thing we don't do well. We don't do well, say, linking to public transport. You get off at your public transport stop. Melbourne, we have trams. The trams stop at night. You've got to wait there in the middle until the lights change, the traffic stops. We should have, we have technology to start thinking about. Tram stop at night, lights change, walker gets off and immediately walks into the community. We don't do these sort of things. Or another one, at tram stops, we increasingly have pedestrian signals double-leg even at one-lane streets. So if you want to cross to the tram stop in the middle, there's two sets of lights. So all these things we don't do which impede walking to keep vehicles moving does have uh, ramifications for, uh, uh, you know, gender, but also... And I think, you know, when we design for walking and walkability, we base it on, if you like, the fit, healthy adult male like me. We don't talk about or do it in terms of who I'd call the walking dependent, which would be seniors, people with disability, kids off leash, young kids, young people. And if you think of it, in Australia, about 30%, a bit more of our population don't have a driver's license. And even more don't have access to a car, so we don't design for those who depend on walking or others to get around first, and we don't do a gender focus over the top. So they're real challenges. So it's more than footpaths, Um, traffic lights. You know, the average speed of a traffic lights uh, based on a one point two meters per second walking speed. Um, Seniors can be half that. Toddlers half that. So how we design our cities is really quite limiting.
0: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
1: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au.
1: And can we talk about uh, increased pedestrian deaths? Um, I mean, I almost hit someone the other night. An old person was walking across the road dark where you know, and I thought, why are you crossing here? And he was almost oblivious to the traffic. Now, and and it really scared me because I thought, well, that that is an accident waiting to happen. But the, there is increased pedestrian deaths. Um, what what's the reason? Do you
2: think? Well, um, that old person might have crossed there because they needed to. Um, I think you know, it's, we often hear, oh, you know, there's a there's you know, signals, you know, 300 metres down the road. Why don't they go down there? Well, you know, if you're an older person, if you're 80 or whatever, it's a bloody long way to go 300 metres one way, 300 metres back just to get across the road. Um, We also know that uh, 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 seniors are overrepresented. The big I mean, there's been a reduction in road fatality trauma and injury over decades. Uh, But the uh, the reduction has been far more for vehicle occupants than those outside, particularly walkers. There has been, if you look over the last couple of decades, a reduction in pedestrian fatalities. There has, however, the the big disturbing trend is there's an increasing proportion of pedestrian fatality and injuries are seniors. If you think back looking at five-year periods 20 years ago, about 42 or 43% of pedestrian fatalities were those over the age of 60. In the last five years, they were 48%. Last year, was 50% over the age of 60.
1: Is that because there's a lot more older people in society as a proportion though?
2: um, Well, if you think uh, they're about 15% of the population, 50% of the deaths, or 16%, and the over 70 uh, went from 32% to 40% last year, they're 11% of the population. So yes, we have an ageing of the population, Key thing is when we analyse five years of uh, pedestrian crash data um, and seeing that seniors are overrepresented, and we know that seniors are not at fault in the vast majority of crashes. Uh, TAC did some analysis of uh, a few years, about 10 years ago, of uh, senior pedestrians injured, and they're at fault in about 12% of crashes. Um, the most common crash scenario is hit by right-turning vehicles. Second most, left-turning vehicles. Uh, go back to footpaths. Sixteen percent of all senior pedestrian crashes, injured, not fatalities, injured or whatever, are on footpaths. And for the over eighty, I think it's about two three percent of two percent of the population. Thirteen percent of all their crash. So. And they are 13% of pedestrian fatalities, but 26% of all their, just under a third of all their crashes occur on footpaths. Is that that from
0: people reversing out of their driveways? In and
2: out of driveways and car parks. So everyone says, stay on footpaths where it's safe. Well, they're not particularly safe. Yeah. So I think there's another thing with seniors, one, when they're hit, they stay hit. And the second thing is that if you look, I'm, I guess, I'm a walker, so it's mine. Right. So I, I cross and I I keep a look at the cars out of the corner of my eye when they're turning, but I don't look to see I'll, you know, to seek them uh, their approval to cross when I have, you know, right of way. Um, but seniors can't jump out of the way. Mm. Uh, you know, and plus, an plus you've also
0: you've also got to think, I guess, of all those seniors that would have Glaucoma well, or vision problems where their peripheral vision is also affected. So, yeah. I guess their ability to identify those cars reversing is completely different to ours.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add to that. Most people with disabilities are not obvious disabilities. Mm. So, like people looking—you can't see their disability, like you know, poor vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: ben, to, to encourage people to walk, uh, they must have pleasant and safe places to walk, and. And a lot of times, good destinations, third places, whatever. How do designers and planners encourage these outcomes? You've talked a little bit about this, but. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think, you know, definitely that being able to cross streets, I mean, this is crossroads and cross streets. Uh, You know, seniors, things like we know if we go on the seniors theme, because being the most vulnerable, um, things like reducing the distance they need to cross, the exposure to traffic, the curb extensions, reducing the complexity of the environment. And complexity would be two lanes of traffic, two-way traffic, so you might have a refuge, that sort of stuff. Making sure, and this is a really important one, that the walking surface. We got Monash Uni to analyse five years of hospital data for falls in the street. Uh, most falls research is about in the home, but 30% happen in the street. And falls happen across the population. We all fall. A kid slips, falls, grazes their knee, that sort of stuff. But seniors, when they fall, it can be devastating because international uh, research says you've got between it. If you fall and do your hip, you've got between 25 and 40% chance you'll be dead in 12 months. So they're much more likely to end up in hospital and longer periods in hospital. Now, when it comes to road safety, so it's not just the footpath quality, to reduce slips, trips and falls, but also because we know driver behaviour, the two big causes for pedestrian crashes are poor driver behaviour and bad road design, is we need them actually looking for vehicles, not looking at their feet because that's where there's footpath and crossing the road, but you want to look at your feet. Or if you're a mum with a pram, you're looking to see how you can get down the pram ramp. <laughs> Not a raised, If you have a raised threshold across the corner, you can look to get across. Um, so but
0: then what does that mean, I guess, in terms of um, retail development? I mean, there's always this tension between having open-air kind of shopping strips versus retail malls. What's your view around that?
2: Well, I think it, it's, it, there's, there's other alternatives in between. Mm. Um, there's a lot in your question you're making me think about there, Jess. <laughs> but we, one of them is you know we, we're doing better at making retail strips better, but we're not doing any, much better at making the trip to the retail strip better. So we're doing yeah. much more walkability, getting people to hang out for coffees and greenery and strips. But yeah. we're in some ways on a hiding to nothing unless we're getting people out of their cars and walking to. The shops—that's the first thing. But going back to the question around you know, between malls and shopping strips, there's other things we need to consider. We did some research report, and all our evidence is on our website. All our research reports, and we did one report, walking and transport in Melbourne suburbs, who'd analyse Vista data in Melbourne, but also available data from councils. And what we did is we looked at—we didn't want to just do the inner areas, which you know are more walkable. But look at and compare the middle and outer suburbs and looking at travel to shops in different design shopping centres or whatever. We didn't look at the big mega malls the Chadstons and the High Points and all that sort of stuff. But comparing uh, middle size, we looked at ones which had better walkability and ones which were really car dependent. Um, and compared, so, you know, walking, better walking would be the main street, like for those who know Melbourne, Altona, Blackburn, Reservoir, Mount Waverley, compared to more car orientated, like Casey Central, Croydon Central, Westfield Avenue Airport West. So really trying to look at similar size. And when you design them better for walking, looking at those who live within 2K of the shopping centre, in the more walkable, 43% walked. But when they're designed for cars, only 17% walked. So there's a massive difference in how you design your shopping centres in the middle and outer. And if you design for people, more people will walk. Now, Peter asked a question before and I forgot what it was, but one of my answers was going to be about what we need to do. Well, minimum car parking is one of them. You know, you know get rid of minimum car parking. And, you know, because if you, di- across Australia, And I think, and as Stephen Burgess has done some good thinking and work around this, but, you know, if you left it up, took away the minimum, developers will do a market assessment about what they can and can't build and what they're able to sell. And that's what will drive it. If you took away the minimum, you would slowly have changed, possibly over many years, about how we designed our cities because minimum, having car parking and car parking, one of the things why we have people... So I'll put another. People choose their travel by, around convenience. Essentially, it is so convenient to drive and not convenient to walk because of all the barriers. And part of that is so much of our road space is allocated to parking, on and off street. So we need to look at car parking. That's one. Just get rid of it because you know we. <laughs> The market will decide on this because people, if they love their cars, won't buy a place if they can't park it. Those, like myself, I'm not in the market for another place, but I've had a car for 14 years, um, which means, you know, um, you know, I have kids, school-aged kids, um, that, you know, We're lucky we live in a middle middle area where we have good public transport, walk, cycle. We don't have a car. Where people who live with car dependent, their household transport costs are 50% more. So I like it because we have much more disposable income. We get better holidays because we have less of a transport budget. But there's an inequity in that, an increasing equity around transport costs and transport poverty. Me and my family, we're incredibly lucky and we live where we live, not through really good planning and decisions, kind of a lot through luck and good fortune over decades that we're in a walkable area. And the issue is most people don't live in areas that have the access to shops, services, transport and that sort of thing that I do.
1: Ben, the, 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 I, I understand the analysis you've given, but the majority of Australian cities are designed and they're based around the car. There uh, so travel times to shops and, and it's very convenient if you say as this parking, but you can't deconstruct that. Pattern. You can maybe fix it. I'm suggesting, hmm. and you can make it softer. But in terms of the physical separation distances and the need for private vehicles, that is, I think impossible to fix. Well, I could be
2: I'll give you one stat. There's uh, Melbourne's a city of 5 million, but it has 4.8 million car trips each week that are less than a kilometre long. So, you know, imagine if we have that number of trips, there'd be savings of $3.2 million a week in transport, so in economic savings. So, yes, I agree with you that car dependency and transport poverty is the major issue, but 4.8, nearly 5 million trips under a kilometre. Mm. Is massive, so we we definitely have to look at what we can do and where we can do it. And retrofitting, particularly in low density, is hard. So it's about uh, targeting where we would do our density. Um, you know, making sure st- stop you know planting houses instead of crops on our urban fringes. Uh, Yet yeah, all those sort of things. But we you know if we're going to look at things we can do, and I'll give you an example. Sorry to personalise my area. I know lots of local residents who are anti-density because they want to, you know, keep the integrity of the suburb as it is. Well, for me, density is really important in areas that have the good infrastructure like public transport. And when you do it in those areas, you will get more shops and services. You will get people wanting to live in those areas rather than out because they'll have more options. So it's about where can we do it and where can we strategically do it? And one of the things strategically in terms of walking, we we don't invest, state and federal governments don't invest in walking, don't value walking. Our high levels of walking have not happened through good planning and investment. They've happened despite an absence of it, a lack of it. So if we were going to do things, let's do, you know, invest in... uh, you know, principal pedestrian networks, really safe, convenient routes from where people live and where they need to get to around public transport and activity centres. So be really, you know, focused in where we're going to do the development, because we can't do it across the network, as you're saying, you know, because they're really, you know, we can't retrofit. So it's sort of being selective about where we can do it. We need to, you know, kids walking to school, massive drop-off. We don't take a precinct approach to getting kids walking to school. You know, the school zones we have are not about getting kids walking to school. They're about making the, 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 um, uh, you know, the uh, school gate safer for car drop-offs. You know, things like our urban speeds. Our urban speeds are too high by international standards. You know, in high you know, in Naples we really should be looking at a 40 kilometer an hour default. We should have 30 around high pedestrian areas. We should make sure that kids can walk to school. And our decision makers, our political leaders, are so hesitant to address the issue of speed, even though they know that's really critical, because they won't take it on. They often say we won't lower speed because we need to take the community along with us. Now that sounds logical. However, it's a bit weak, it's very absurd, because if we took that approach, we wouldn't have drink driving laws, we wouldn't have compulsory seat belts, we wouldn't have red light cameras and road safety cameras, because all those sort of things, when they were brought in, were very, very unpopular. Governments of the day did them, because they're the right things to do. Governments of the day now need to look at things like urban speeds, because you look at the high countries, cities around the world that have high walking have lower speeds and have density and connectivity. So they're sort of issues that we have a lack of willingness by our governments to address. But the other thing though, I think talking about, we don't have a focus on walking and transport trips because walking is taken for granted and slips through the cracks of policy and investment. And one of the reasons is, it cuts across so many areas of government. It's the transport of planning and development, a health, an environment, energy, climate change, ageing, sport and recreation. cuts across. We don't have an ownership. No agency takes responsibility. And state and federal governments leave it up to local government, which is an absurdity. If we want to address things like congestion and health and all those things, it actually has to be the forefront. But there's also poor decision-making processes within government. Governments, all levels, generally use ATAP, Australian Transport and Assessment Planning Tool to provide, you know, provides governments with the guidance to use a cost-benefit analysis in the appraisal of transport, um, you know, options and initiatives to prioritise them. But ATAP, so it misses social cohesion, placemaking and equity benefits. And while it's not my area of expertise, the guide is complex and, because I don't use it, it's complex, lacks clarity doesn't differentiate between types of walking like a commuter who walks every day to the train station is the same as someone hiking up in the alps or a senior doing an exercise walk of the morning and it lacks the data to compare with other modes so it's difficult to justify so transport planning puts in the data spits out the solution if we don't have the walking data it's often not part of the solution and the other thing i'll just finish on is it depends on journey time savings and we don't do journey time savings where walking walkers are considered. It's about vehicles. So it's hard to unjustify investment if it negatively impacts on travel times. An example, if you had a two-lane road with medium volume of traffic but crowded over crowded uh, narrow footpaths, and you wanted to double a side of the footpaths, take away a traffic lane, and it massively increased the efficiency and numbers of people who moved along that corridor, if it negatively impacted upon travel times, it's really unlikely to get
1: up. And uh, walking is a bit like vegetables. We, we all know we should you know, eat or walk more, but people don't. One of the problems with you know, the short distance, you said there's a high proportion of trips, 1k or less. Some of that might be to do with shopping, right? And, you know, sh- no one likes to carry bags, heavy bags, back 600 metres. I mean, there's a, there's a limit for what people can carry and uh, most people who aren't motivated. You, uh, and I'm thinking that it's time to make shopping trolleys sexy again, what do, what do, just to help people make the distance. Are
0: you talking about the old school sort of material I'm
1: going well, to call it a granny trolley. Is well, that- well okay. I've got this very cool Spanish shopping trolley. that I, And how they advertised it was had models walking on a catwalk with them. And, you know, everyone thinks oh, it's only a nana thing. But I don't think so, Jess. I mean, you know, I've got my shopping trolley. What do you yeah. think, Ben? About-
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think I've, there's a few things. The first is to to start tough up. and bags. I mean, really, goodness sake. In Africa, they stick things on their head. A lot of women carry great ways. But but I will say shopping trolleys. I'll give you an anecdote. I have a few different types of shopping trolleys, two-wheel, four-wheel, the big crate we take to the market every week. But the four-wheel is the classic one that you see elderly people pushing around um, with a vinyl four-sided. I was on a tram with that last year and I got on with it and a woman who must have been over 75 jumped up to offer me her seat because she assumed that because I was carrying it, I must have a disability. So, yeah, we, 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 we do have a, a bit of a, an issue with, with uh, how shopping jeeps are viewed, but I think... And I think yes, you know, it's like, you know, try and make them funky and sexy and that's the hard thing with walking as compared to cycling. Cycling's much more chic. It's you know, it's funky, it's sexy, it's in a city where walking is hard to sell because it is pedestrian as every day. We all
0: But then even it. even saying that we, with cycling, I still don't think we've really nailed the ability to carry groceries on a bike. I don't no, think yes. that's really something that we've
2: Yes and no. On. Yes and no. At the moment, you know, with we go to the market once a week, usually do on the train. In the last couple of uh, three or four weeks, we still go to the Vic market, about 6 k away. We take, I'd ride on, take the bike trailer. <laughs> Where there's a wheel, there's a way, and we do it. And we, get, we, we don't go to a lot of supermarket shopping. We get a lot of fruit and veg and deli stuff. But the other thing, just to, just to stop, to just go back, the really critical issue with walking for transport and things like, you know, shopping trolleys, Overseas people walk, and they walk around, you know, they might get little things or big things. Because what we do in Australia is we try and do behavior change and give people carrots to say, if you walk, you'll get this. But what we really need is bloody big sticks. So that's what we don't do. Design less for this car, design for people, and problem is solved. If you go and stay or live in European cities, people don't do what I do, go to the big market once a week and get a whole lot of fruit and veg, they might do it three or four times during the week. It's a different way of engaging with and buying things. Uh, You can get, you see in Europe, people getting quite big goods home on buses and trains and whatever, so it's kind of, if you take away the convenience of the car and do the walkability, the problem's solved.
1: Mm, I'm not so sure Ben <laughs> I don't like that vision but anyway the, the Jesuit said uh, give me a child until the age of seven and I'll show you the adult getting kids to feel good about walking early is a, is a great long-term investment
2: well, yes, it is, and kids learn from mimicry. We know that they, you know, they learn from others. Adults, particularly parents, and they will model their behaviour on them. And it is disturbing or worrying that we have a whole generation of children growing up, and you know, because there's parents who are breeding who didn't walk to school or walk around their neighbourhood themselves, and now they're parents. So that is a concern. Uh, and I would add to it we've got to be careful not to put too much emphasis on walk to school. I think the really critical thing is kids' independent mobility and movement around neighbourhoods. Walk to school is just one part of it. Um, so, yes, we need to, you know, it is an issue about we all need to walk more and model behaviour. Again, it's harder in outer suburbs when the walking is more recreational than transport walking. So the design of our cities is the critical thing in this. Is You know, you do it. Countries that have really good walking and cycling don't really need behaviour change programs, don't do a lot of them because people do it. Again, it's not convenient to get in the car.
1: So, so it's creating that physical um, uh, attractiveness and
2: support mm. for walking is yeah. critical. Yeah. yeah, it's critical. Um, and also, you know, the other side too is that with kids, but also young people. We, you know, young people, when we did research, interviewed over a 1,000 young people commissioned research, couple of years ago, that asking young people what they want. Um, they want to live in areas that are walkable, where there's shops and services and public transport. They don't want to live in outer urban areas where they're dependent on a the car. They There is significant trend, and it's, I think it's over the last this is 2000, I think, 12 or so figures. But, you over know, a 12-year period, there's a 13% drop in licence ownership between, for those aged between 18 and 30. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, including it's a bit more difficult to get a licence when I was a kid. But, and I think an important distinction, when I was growing up, as soon as you turned 18, you got your licence, you got use of a car. Uh, not everyone owned a car, you know, there might be less cars in households. But, you, you know, you drove around to meet up with your mates, and I think for young people, the choice they've got, now some are going to be absolutely car-dependent, but if they've got a choice, they still want to cruise around, but they're more likely to cruise around via technology, uh, but they still want to meet up and they want to be in walk. So we've got an enormous opportunity that we are our decision-makers and planners, we're not meeting the needs of what young people want, and that's walkable communities.
1: And in your role, what has surprised you in terms of promoting walking?
2: Um well, I guess you know it's, it's there's a lot, but I guess it's you know we don't value walking, and I knew that already. Um, but I think surprised me is we get policies and strategies that recognise the importance of walking. But the thing surprised me, I always thought the policies and strategies would lead to investment, but what we get is nice, fluffy words, and we don't get a lot of investment. So I kind of, that's been something I thought once we'd get a strategy or a policy that it would bring about action, but we don't, and governments tend to weasel out of funding walking. Um, and, you know, and one is around, you know, as I said before, walking for recreation, the most popular physical activity, but we don't invest in it, in a safer walking for recreation. It's more popular in organised sports and it has a greater potential for public health, mental health, physical health, social health, uh, and economic, you know, economic health of communities by getting people walking. But, and walking participation is more than in Australia football, tennis, golf, netball, cricket and cycling combined. But when you look at the funding, In our last state budget, the state had 100 million for basketball, 20 million for soccer, 13 million for cricket, 7 million for golf, 7 million for motorsport, and 8 million for shooting guns, but nothing specific for walking for recreation. Nothing at all. We did have something around walking for walking. It combined with camping and four-wheel driving. So that's, you know, but nothing, nothing specific on walking. And one of the reasons is possibly women aged between 18 and 54 are twice as likely to walk for men. So there's a gender inequity in our sport and recreation funding. Like we want to get women involved in lots of sports for good reason, like AFL and whatever, my 12-year-old daughter, that's her career path, she thinks, um, which is great. But we're missing the thing that particularly women and seniors are already doing and want to do. So that sort of thing, you think, well, they would fund what people want. No, they don't.
1: Well, Jess, time for podcast extra. And Ben, Ben, this is a a part where we ask our guests what they've been listening, reading or watching uh, that might be of interest to our listeners. Mm.
2: Yeah, well, this might be a little out of the box. What I've been listening to is the footsteps of people walking um particularly in this time of COVID. i you know apart from walking myself i spend a lot of time always have in our front yard it's only about three meters you know long i spent a lot of time out there talking to people going by so i think you know i've been listening i can hear people coming up the footpath so i've been listening to what i'm reading and i did i didn't read for many years i did a thesis and after my thesis kind of killed my enthusiasm for reading (laughs) for decades. But I've got back into reading, I've been reading detective fiction, which I find odd because I'm not interested in police shows on telly, but detective fiction. And the reason why is because I think they're based around cities. And when you read them, one of my favourite authors, Ian Rankin, who does the Rebus novels, I heard him talk about when he did, did Rebus, it was around... His character could be a cop or a journalist because they, one, get out in city space and they interact with all levels of society. So I think for me it's detective fiction because of the intimate way and in Rankin's, you know, Edinburgh is his, but with detective fiction because they're based in cities and really getting in the nitty and gritty, whether it's, you know, back lanes and streets and you know, neglected abandoned areas of cities right up to the, you know, the higher... Uh, more uh, you know, um, popular inner city areas like that's what I re- I've enjoyed reading because it's a really about cities and how people interact on a fictional level.
1: And Jess, what about what, what have you been up to? Any recommendations?
0: I've fallen in love with cooking again, so I think I sort of reached a, a stage of um uh, I guess my my cooking was quite stale for a long time, and I've really fallen in love with it, particularly with baking. So safe to say. We've been having dessert almost every single night. But my my little trick to doing that, though, is making sure that I quarter the amount of sugar that's put in every recipe. So hopefully that has the desired impact.
1: Very very virtuous.
0: (laughs) What about you, Pete?
1: Um, Planet of the Humans, which is a documentary that's Supported by Michael Moore, uh, he's produced some very interesting things over the years: Trump Land, Bowling for Columbine, and he's supported this uh, documentary called Planet of the Humans, which is uh, a fresh take on the renewable industry. Sorry, renewable uh, energy industry, and it takes a very sceptical view of it. I, um, see it before it's banned. Uh, there's a number of people who are trying to ban it at the moment, so. Uh, very interesting and really um surprising documentary, Planet of the Humans, and also I've been
2: making lots of chutney, Jess. So ah, there you go, you me too. I actually, I've
0: still got a <laughs> jar of your chutney in the pantry,
2: Pete. Right? Yes, I made my I made my first batch of chutney, which I was wrapped with. I um, uh, wish I'd hidden it from the kids,
1: though, but anyway. <laughs> it it, it such fun, Ben, such yeah. delight. I'm with yeah. you on that. So, yeah. uh, ben, thank you so much for our first Zoom uh, interview. And uh, listeners, we will work better to get the audio better, but we um, will we'll keep producing podcasts. and We am so grateful that you listen to them and we hope you enjoy them. Ben, thank you so much for being our guest. And Thanks, always ben. good to work with you, Jess.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Bate.